0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,
2: Not a diving podcast, with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving podcast. Okay, thanks to all of you for your great feedback to last week's episodes. Last week was the most popular episode we've ever done. That was with Scream, and lots of you seem to like it. I think there's going to be quite a lot of new listeners listening this week as a result of that episode. And actually, we made our first appearance in the UK music podcast top 10 last week so that is real progress that is quite a decent stat so yeah thanks for listening if you're in the UK and if you're not in the UK then spread the words and let's get up those international charts too shall we yeah so like I said yeah thanks to all of you for the great feedback it was a great episode if you haven't listened to that one then head back and listen to it there were some great stories from from Ollie and uh yeah just a really enjoyable Chat really over a couple of hours, so yeah, really good one. Okay, right on to this week's show. We welcome onto the podcast this week another legend of underground UK music, it's Crust. Now, those of you who are drum and bass heads will obviously be very, very aware of his work as part of the full cycle crew and represent. And of course, Represent won the Mercury Music Prize in 1997. So, the first time we've welcomed a Mercury winner to the show. He more recently released an album on Crosstown Rebels, actually. And we had Damien Lazarus on the show a few weeks ago, which was, it's still kind of in that direction, in that kind of area, but very much a step forward or a step on from the classic crust material of the 90s and 2000s. And actually, he spent quite a long time on hiatus, during which time he really expanded his horizons and eventually set up what is a... I suppose it's a consultancy. I mean, it's down here as a coaching company. It's called Adapt the Canvas. But he does work with a wide range of people, from aspiring artists to senior business people, about basically the nature of creativity and how best to work in a kind of creative way. So he's a really interesting person, I think. And it's a really interesting conversation we had, I think you'll agree, once you've listened to this week's episode. So let's get into it, shall we? Just before we do that, a reminder that you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash official, two tiers up there, both very reasonably priced, the lower of which is, you know, less than a cup of coffee that kind of thing so if you like what we're doing here that would be really really nice of you if not if you can't do it that's also cool leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast follow the spotify playlist there's a link in the show notes to that playlist and join us in the discord hot flush recordings.com slash discord gets you through to that discord server come and say hello we'd love to see you there okay without further delay here is crust Rust, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So I've just been reading a whole bunch of your interviews. I've I've been a fan of your music since... Well, put it this way, I bought Warhead the week it came out (laughs) um, on on 12. So I'm I'm a (laughs) long-time listener. But having spent, like I said, the, the morning reading like all the press you did for the last album and you've done a fair few interviews recently like all the well a lot of the questions I thought I was going to be asking you have just gone out the window I figured I was going to be asking about the drum and bass scene in Bristol in the early 90s but none of my questions are about that so let me let me throw you on to get started this is the most general question ever but it kind of relates to I think a lot of what you've been doing the last 10 years do you have a definition of creativity like what is creativity to you?
3: good question (laughs) Um I think I think about two things specifically when I'm when I'm in that zone or in that space or or trying to make something and one is culture and the other one is art and so I'm trying to balance the two things up I'm trying to make sure that I'm expressing myself in a way that really reflects the art form um You know, I consider myself a B-boy. So I I grew up in the hip-hop era in the early days. You know, I was fascinated by the culture. It really affected me. I was 14 years old when it it, it sort of all happened. And I really got that culture. And when I started to make Jungle in the early days, I brought that B-boyism, that hip-hop mentality into Jungle. And that stayed with me. The craft is very important I spend a lot of time thinking about what that sounds like, what that looks like, what that feels like. I don't think about making music. I think about making art. And so the discipline for me around creativity is really exposing myself to the highest forms of that art form and the highest forms of the, those cultures and then figuring out a way to you know, synthesise it, figure out a way to tell a story, figure out a way to build these universes and I think that's how I would define creativity
2: do you think everyone is creative
3: yes if you're not creative you're doing it in a creative way
2: I mean yeah absolutely I uh, I hear you on all those points I think that um, when people talk about creativity and when kind of creativity is, I think to a large extent, it's almost fetishized in society. Everyone talks about, you know, when you're talking about a job you're going for, people, you know, prioritise what they see as quote-unquote creative people or whatever, but it's often pretty ill-defined. I mean, actually, another question, as you were saying that, and one that I've talked a little bit about on the show, and I don't really have a hard answer for but do you have a definition of art?
3: The unique expression... Of you and what you are.
2: Yeah. Again, that's, um, that definitely opens the door to anyone to be a potential artist, right? It's universal.
3: Listen, nobody's special, but we're all unique. And so the, the whole term creativity has been productized and monetized. Just like innovation. Just like innovation
2: yeah sure that's exactly what i was getting at yeah 100 percent.
3: right it's just it's just marketing so the humans the human like the human species has survived because we're creative it's that simple so the whole term and the whole conversation really is just a meme it doesn't really mean anything it just sells books or you know makes fast the headline and fast company or harvard business review seem and seem like this company's more intelligent than someone else, or they keep, t- you know, they they use the phrase and they show you a picture of Musk. It's like, come on, <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, so the, the, the obvious next question is like, how damaging is the music industry to musical creativity? I mean, that's that's the that's my logical next question to that.
3: Well, I think I think you're onto something, but I think you have got to go way back to the source, and that's and that's. Education, the, s- the system of education okay. as a whole. I think that's what the problem is. There's countless studies of um, young children going into these environments, into the education system, and let's just use a hundred percent as a measure. And they're a hundred percent creative. And by the time you come out of you know standardized education, you're at thirty percent. And then you're told to be creative in, in a job. You know our cre- our education system is outdated. And if there's a word that means outdated more than outdated, that please find it. But it's it's, it's archaic. It's it's it, that's the system that's doing us the most damage. In African, the word uh, education means to draw who you are out, and we've not been we've not been doing that for a long time on this planet. And when we do it, when we do do it, we um, we vilify those people. Who 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 are creative? Who are singly geniuses? Who do break the mold? Who are disruptive? Who are innovative? What do we do with them? We hang them out to dry. We call them names. We say you are a misfit. We say you don't fit it. And why would anybody want to be like that? You know, it's like the Disney model. You know, I have this whole whole idea about you know how Disney has trained us to either wanna be a knight or a princess, right? Um and what they do right, but what they do, if you watch if you watch a lot of the early Disney films, they vilify rich people and they um heroise poor people. And so you get this confused idea that it's bad to be rich because Cravilla de is gonna skin your dog and, and she's a baddie because she's rich and you got and to be good and spiritual you gotta be poor. And it's this whole thing that's been drilled into us from a very young age, and so it skewed our, our ideas about reality. And then you look at, you read um, John Gatti Taylor's books, uh, Underground, Education, Underground Railroad Education of America, something like that School, And basically he breaks down what the school is. And so the head, the teacher at the front of the class is, is the, is the uh, priest, and he, stand, and he or she is standing at the altar looking down at you. And so you see the teacher as the God symbol and as the ultimate ruler. And they define what's wrong or right. And in reality, there is no wrong or right. There's just learning. And so you can't go into any environment thinking it's black and white. You'll always lose. Uh, So one of the biggest companies to come out in the last 30 years, 20 years, is Facebook. And And what's their motto? Move fast and break everything. Imagine that being a motto in school. You'd fail. You'd fail every exam. You'd fail every question. Uh, Billy, what's the square root of pi? Mm, don't know. Let's fist let's let's have a brainstorming session. No nope, fail. So you're not even allowed to think, you're not allowed to act, you're not allowed to question, and that's not reality. We don't live there. You know, look where we are in the last 20 years and all the innovations that's come out through the internet and how cryptos come through, how AI's come through, how Web3 is going to be taking over. All that's come from trial and error. All that's come from people making mistakes, from experimenting, from thinking outside the box, from leaving the box way behind we now need to upgrade our education system because we're doing our children a disservice, putting them into this archaic reality and then assuming that they're going to do some great shit.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the history of public education really is uh, like the government attempt to create productive workers, basically, people to man the productive economy, right? And I mean, ironically, prior to that, like the, the history of... Like public schools wasn't so much to educate boys because it was boys, boys. it was to create gentlemen, right? (laughs) People who would, you know, men who would sort of do the right thing. And it wasn't really about, you know, uh, know, teaching to the test or as we term it now, right? But it wasn't about preparing people for work. It was about preparing men to be, you know, (laughs) to run the empire, I suppose, if you want to look at it that way. But I think you're totally right to say that what's what's happening now is is really a kind of hangover from that 20th century, let's create people who are going to be wage slaves, basically. And it's interesting that you mention AI because actually that's what might make the
3: whole thing completely redundant. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can easily see that. Um, I think the opportunity, what well, that's going to bring, it, hopefully, if we can get it right, it will just free up our time. You know, I don't believe in the scaremongering. Again, it's Hollywood, right? All the bad examples they keep talking about this technology are based on all the films that we see in Hollywood. You know, and it's just the same thing. And anything bad... Vilify it. It's in Hollywood. Aliens are bad. AI is bad. Rich people are bad. Not that I've ever met a rich alien (laughs) AI. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There might be some bad ones out there, but we have to expect. We just got to experiment. As long as we're open, and that's what creativity to me is about as well. As long as we're open to experiment, and we do have some some guide rails, I think we'll be all right. Well, now that we've mentioned AI. From,
2: from that, I, I assume that your view of AI or the potential of AI in, in music making and in the music industry, quote unquote, more generally, I take it you've got a fairly
3: positive view of it. When they brought out the electricity, no one wanted it. When they brought out the steam train, hardly anybody rode on it. When they brought out the radio, they said it was the devil talking. We see the same pattern over and over and over again. Fear drives headlines and pays people's mortgages. (laughs) That's how I see it. I I don't buy into any of it. I mean, technology is always going to be used for however the people who are going to be using it use it. They keep saying that AI is going to take people's jobs. AI ain't going to do anything. The people who understand how to use AI are going to take your jobs. Right? Think about what cars did to the horse and carriage. Is anybody complaining now? As, think about what the telephone, the mobile phone did to the to the telephone in your house. Is anybody complaining now? Right? So I would I wouldn't want to walk to London for a gig. Do you know what I'm saying? I just use I use technology. And if you stop following the headlines and look at people trying to sell newspapers if you just pull back from that, and this is the problem we have, because people aren't educated enough to be to use discernment or to have critical analysis of the information that's being presented to them, they just repeat what they're, they repeat what the people around them say because it's a great headline, and so that's that culture is corrosive. It doesn't give anything the opportunity, and maybe there is. There's a downside to everything. Look how many people who are now, you know, becoming sick from using phones. Look how many people becoming sick from, you know, the, the electromagnetism magnetism in cars. Look how many people get knocked down by cars. There's nothing out there that's valuable. They say the plane is the most safest form of transport. How many down planes are there? You know, we could go on all day. It's like this. This it's just the latest headline grabber that they're using to to you know to justify the the the, the latest online papers subscription model
2: yeah i mean i totally uh, i totally see that yeah i know it's catastrophizing around it and it's um you know partly from you know people who work in the on the tech side of ai i think there's been a a fair bit of scaremongering and i don't know it's just impossible to know how seriously to take the kind of more Existential threats to get talked about, right? But just, but just keeping it on, just, just in the, you know, the instance of music, the example of, of music, you know, as, as someone who's gone from, you know, I know you made your early tracks using an Atari ST and a sampler, right? Going th- from that through, you know, what we've gone through in the last sort of twenty years of music tech, you know, the, making music in the box and the kind of development of, of plugins and all the rest of it, up to today. I mean, I kinda of take a I mean it's not a pessimistic view, but I sort of I sort of feel slightly ambivalent about the way music tech has um has led to just this avalanche of sort of music which is okay, you know? And that in itself is fine. But but I think the problems with that is that it makes you know, it just muddies the waters for people who are uh, you know, making good music, and that's obviously a, a slightly problematic statement. But but you probably see what I'm getting at.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I I, I think yes, there is the the, the commodification of music because it, it, the the common you know the the barrier to entry is so low at the moment, and I think I think the there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a lack of You know, um, significance from individuals on this planet. You know, I think we're a low energy species. We know we're a traumatized species. You know, we're finding significance in how many likes we get on a picture. So if you think about the attention that you can get, and listen, I'm I'm a victim of that myself. And my story, you know, took me a while to figure it out. But one of the reasons, not the only reason, but I felt that sort of lack of significance myself as a young black kid growing up in Norwest in this white council estate. You know, when I found DJ in, I found, you know, purpose, but also I, I felt that, you know, I could I could get that significance from the crowd, from the audience, from being recognized, from being somebody, from getting respect from that. So I understand what that's like. If you if you come from, you know, places where your self-esteem is low. It feels like that that can fill the that that can fill the void, and so you then pair that with you know something like how DJs and producers and you know artists have been praised over the last twenty five years. You know, look what look what you know look how easy it has been for for you to get into that place with paste you know cut and paste copy and paste facebook tutorials sorry youtube tutorials you know these schools that teach people what to do instead of how to do which we go back to the same you know education system again and so that's the recipe you know uh and, and we're seeing that across the board at the moment you know no one puts a post on on instagram saying shit man it's been a tough day today it's been challenging. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> right? It doesn't, look, doesn't sound good. Because like, no one wants to hear that, right? No, no one, one wants-, <laughs> wants to hear that. <laughs> right? But that's the reality. You're going to have some hard times out there. And so there's this is kind of like false perception of what it is to be alive right now. And I think that we need to address a couple of those things and that hopefully can expose you know where the gaps are we can try and find solutions I mean technology can be great for that to find solutions for the you know it's almost like you know the mental health crisis you know technology can can definitely help in that and if we get some time I'd love to explore that but I think what AI is going to do it will bring down the barrier even more and it will make it even easier for people to create One, easy money, right? Because the the barrier or the level for talent is way reduced. Two, as long as those people are being rewarded by the platforms, because remember, the platforms are advertising, are based on advertising, not on talent, not on, you know, uh, creativity. And half of, and I don't know any of them that are actually made by people, uh, by creatives or artists. And so... The emphasis is based on the wrong metrics. You know, you don't get rewarded for creativity or art on Spotify. You get rewarded for understanding how to game them the algorithm. Like, that's where we are. People keep,
2: you know. Yeah, I mean, the best art is never the most popular art, no. basically. So, I mean, how much of this is down to the commoditization of everything? Because it's not just art. It seems that everything in society has kind of been reduced to a, a numbers game.
3: Yeah, well, blame Jeff Bezos. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, he's certainly one of
3: the culprits, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I love his quote. You know, he, when, he was in, when he was asked why Amazon is killing the bookstore, book, book he said, I'm not killing the bookstore, the future is. Right. And he was right. When you say it. Listen, right. We got to understand that you got... Listen, when we grew up, you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm in my 50s. I'm in my 40s, yeah. Right. And so when I grew up, I remember having a black and white TV and it had maybe like three stations on it. BBC One, BBC Two and like HTV. And then, And then about two years later, we got a colour TV. And then another two years later, Channel Four came out. We had four channels, and and then you know we had uh, a Benetone game box, you know, a, a game console, Benetone one with the beep boop, beep boop, and that was the future, bruv. <laughs> right? And I've been alive long enough to see us go from that to where we are now, and it's it's you know I I couldn't imagine being a kid born now, right? And, and and for us, we, you know, I don't know if you've got children or not, but I'm trying to teach my children and get them to understand. It wasn't always like that, but they don't see it. They don't even care. They just want the latest phone. They want the latest toys. They want the da 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 And it's like, that's the world that's they're inheriting. So it's not, like Steve Jobs didn't make the iPad for us. He made it for children because he knew that if they could understand it and use it, what, was going to, what were they going to build with it? Because look what we did with an Atari 1040, ST1040. We made jungle music. And look what jungle music is now. Look how the influence of what jungle has had on the world. That's just from kids who sat in rooms, who were ousted from society, who didn't fit in, who had these ideas to, of making irregular rhythms. Look what's happened. Right, so you got to imagine what's going to happen now with these. Listen, I've always said if I was a if I was young now, fifteen years old now, I'd be a YouTuber straight away, no doubt, because to me that's one of the most creative platforms, most exciting place to create content, and that's what we were doing back then.
2: It's really interesting you say that, actually, because I think you're right. There's like there is an incredible amount of creativity happening now. It's not in music though. I don't think it's in it's in other things, and and I think you, YouTube's a, a great example, right? And you know there are people doing and, and TikTok actually as well. You know as, as much as it's sort of much maligned, and maybe or maybe you're not. It's a Chinese you know propaganda platform, but some of the people on there are making you know really incredible creative stuff, right? Yeah, but don't you think there's time for the music business to evolve? I, I think it has to, yeah, because I, I just don't think it's... I think it's been going around in circles, basically, for knocking
3: on 30 years now, right? You know why? Because people that are running it are still living in, in nostalgia. They can't, they can't see the vision. They keep talking about the glory days. I do coaching, and I've been coaching for 15 years, and I've got, you know, we'll talk about that probably a bit more later, but one of the things that 80%... Of the people I coach, say, when, 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 when we start working together is, I want to be a DJ, I want to be a producer, I want to start a label. And my question to them is, why? And they can't answer it. And, it's, and I, I know the answer why. It's nostalgia. They're stuck on this whole idea of the fantasy and the dream of what the music business used to be. You know, I call it the Burt Reynolds era, You know, where where men were men. The whole John Wayne whole thing. Clint Eastwood. Right? It just seems great. You know, put on a Leo Schaefer soundtrack and put some flares on. Do you know what I mean? It just felt great, that period. Rocky, it felt great. Do you know what I'm saying? It just felt great when watching those films. But that's back then. You know, we have to look at projecting ourselves into a, a creative future that... It's sustainable. And I think that's one of the reasons why this argument about AI frightens people is because they haven't been taught creativity. How could you, a creative being, be afraid of this technology? Surely we should be able to have some ideas like this that this, this technology won't be able to beat us at. We've survived this long. What's going to happen? What we're just going to just put that, oh, AI do, whoa, oh, down tools then, guys. Human race finished. That's it i can't believe that i just, to me it doesn't make any sense it's irrational it's illogical you know we w- we've always found another way to do what we need to do you know i think if we have more time to think i think that's what the problem- one of the problems is we're so time poor so time compressed we're so stressed we're so traumatized with the with the brutality of of the and the regime of twenty four seven constantly negative news and we volunteer it at the moment and we're volunteering for it at the moment because we're on the scrolls of scrolls of death 24 7 that where do we come out of that and have these interesting conversations that are about creativity about art about you have to you have to go really looking in the nooks and crannies and down the alleys why has it been relegated to that why are you called weird names weirdo or seen as outlier because you want to talk about these type of things why do you have to preface your conversation you know when you want to talk about these things
2: Mm. let me ask you about coaching because that's that's really interesting. It's something that, well, I think the, the sort of the attitude of people coming into music is something that really interests me a lot. So if you say that it's a really difficult thing for people to come in with a kind of predetermined notion of what they want to come out of it with, which is to say this kind of like almost like an old world paradigm of what success looks like. How clear an idea do you have of what success for them? would be
3: i I really what i encourage people to do is enjoy the process i think that's the that's the that's that's the success if you can enjoy the process then the result of that is success the result of that is is potential income potentially living a life on your terms i think what i try and do is try i try and reorganize and help them think about what it is they're doing in a different way you know, they come to me, they got this idea, you know, that the world is X and they, they've been seeing people like myself f- from afar in magazines, online, on uh, festivals, and they have a perception, they have an idea of what this life is like. And, but they only observed that for an hour. So of course it looks glamorous with the fireworks going off and big speakers and people run up and down stages and, and then you watch it back on YouTube or on IG or whatever. And of course it looks great. But the reality of it is, is 23, there's 23 other hours in a day where real work happens, where, you know, concentration, discipline, focus, persistence, creativity, art... Uh, learning lessons, mindset, all that stuff is at play, you know, 20, you know uh, 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 to a degree that separates, you know, them from the others. And that's the bit that they don't observe. So they'll only see the other. They see one side of the coin. Oh, that looks great. You know, you're performing. You look like you're losing money, having a great time, da, 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 And it's like, yeah, we are. But for the other 20 odd hours, we're working very, very hard. We don't have much social life. We don't have much family life. We spend lots of time in these four in these four walls with computers, pushing out ideas 24-7, trying to be better than we were last week you know, dealing with criticism from tracks that didn't meet up to other people's expectations, albums that sometimes don't work, albums that do work, you know, the pressures of success, the pressures of failure, the the treatment that you get, you know, when your career isn't going the way that you want, when you have a bad show. I mean, I could go on and on, but people don't see that. And so I'm here, you know, my course, Adapt the Canvas, is here to... to offer a way to see the, the whole picture to bring you up to you know a point where let's look at what the future of the art form is and and the the, the the great saying by uh the saying of Wayne Gretzky is I go where the puck is going to be you know that's my mentality that's what I try and instill on them it's like okay I get it you're in you're into music but let's think about what if what would happen if you looked at the entertainment world what would happen if you looked at the culture of entertainment you know and then what would look what would it look like if you thought about how you could fit into that and and what if music was just a part of the story then what could you do because what they are the area they're stuck in is this whole idea that's 20 years old and they think just because they can't make music the way that the people that they've been following do it, or they can't get on a label. That they they they're not going to have a career. It's like, well, that's because you're thinking about it from a twenty year old perspective. You know, mm-hmm. think about like we just said. Look at the people on YouTube or or on um, on TikTok. There's people on there crushing it, and and they're not traditional quote unquote musicians or DJs or producers. They've found a way to express themselves in front of an audience. Is that DJing? I don't know. Is that doing live shows? I don't know. Do you think they care? They're enjoying themselves. And so that's my view on it. It's like, let's get you to a place where you can enjoy what you're doing. You can enjoy contributing. You can enjoy uh, being part of a community. You can enjoy building content that you love and people enjoy. And if if you can continue that and you're consistent for long periods of time, maybe it it can, you know, uh, create a living for yourself.
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely, and you're right in what you said before that there's a like a huge amount of nostalgia and like small C conservatism. I think, like, particularly in the, in in music generally, but I think particularly in the in the dance scene, sort of as a, as a whole, you know, across across genres of that dance scene, and um, you know, I, I have a similar experience of you know, when I'm signing like, young kids to my label, for example, and having you know long conversations with them about you know where they want to go and and how best to go about that. And I suppose it's a similar sort of thing, a similar kind of um, process anyway. And a lot of the time, when I suggest you know, doing things which are, let's say, unconventional and certainly not the way that it's been done in the kind of like the legacy framework if I can put it like that quite often there's a there's a kind of rolling of the eyes and it's like well that's not like how it should be that's not that's not the pure way of doing it and I really it really really frustrates me but how do you explain that mindset in young people like in in kids like why is that why is that legend so like seductive or whatever
3: the right term is like how do you explain that yeah, I mean that it is—it is it's, it's seductive because of the symbol of what it what it represents. You know, being famous. You know, being successful, standing on the stage. You know, it's like it's—it's it's, it's seductive. You know, you you see people being you know adored or you know idolized. You know, star worshipped, and you know, who doesn't want that. Even if it is for fifteen seconds, you know everyone wants to experience it. It's like uh, Chris Rock said: "Every everybody, um, uh, money doesn't make you happy, but everyone wants to find out for themselves."
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a great quote, isn't it? It's so true. Yeah,
3: it's the same thing, you know. Success and fame, you know, success and money. And uh, my my version of it is, you know, money and fame, uh, you know, don't, don't aren't the source of happiness because fame is fleeting and money always runs out. And so, you know, you, you're better going for, you know, it's not even happiness. It's like, it's like contentment, you know, find something that you love and put your time and energy into that and build.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yes. Up to a point. I mean, I think that's absolutely true, but. Like there are people who are really successful. I mean, like, you know, someone like Jake Paul, like he's one of the most famous people in the, in the Western world probably now. Yeah, or Maybe in just the world generally. Right. And he's come through his paradigm. So, so it's absolutely possible to get fam- rich and famous from TikTok or from YouTube. But, but despite that, like the I guess the kind of legend of the 20th century just seems to, it still seems to loom large, particularly in the dance scene. You know, like people want to make an underground resistance tune or want to make a, you know, want to make warheads, and it seems to be that it seems to be in the minds of a lot of people coming into it, it's the purity which is just as important as the. Uh, it's almost like the identity that surrounds it, and like, identity is such a such a huge thing in popular culture now. It's almost as important, I think, in in the, in the kind of in the zeitgeist maybe as money for some people, or for quite a lot of people, I think maybe. What do you mean? Well, I mean I think like the um it's it's the like the, the kind of cultural cachet that comes with something which is seen as being ideologically pure and that in itself I think is is just as seductive as as money and fame. And I'm I'm hypothesizing here but maybe that is an explanation as well because everything, you, everything you said, I totally agree with. But I think there is something more as well,
3: you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but yeah, but that that whole thing's flawed in itself because.
2: Oh, absolutely, it is. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not, it's not, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, you, everyone's following this idea. Like most people, I think. I think you know, the the root of like the whole thing stems from just this disconnection with, with reality. You know, since since the um, the. Uh, What's that big, the hadlong Collider? Since they turned that on, I think that's what the problem is in the world. It's, it's fucked up the timeline. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like we we live in the Simpson universe right now. I don't know. You know, let's get back to you know the the human universe. it's, it's what's going on? Is is it, you know if someone came from another planet or or just woke up out of a time capsule and you explained to them what was going on. It just wouldn't make any sense. It's hard to quantify sometimes the reality we live in. Let me ask you a specific
2: question sort of related to that. Like, um, I'm just going to talk about in general terms. I know you've talked a lot about in in interviews about sort of telling stories through music and experiences. And oftentimes I think that's a, a general lesson which is just as important as almost anything else in making this stuff. How important is just music production tuition? Do you, I mean, like, do you talked before about you know, the education system and YouTube tutorials and all the rest of it. Like, I mean, is all that stuff, is it a waste of time? Or to what
3: extent is it a waste of time, do you think? I, well, it's a, it's a great question. Um, would, would Leonardo da Vinci be who he is without his training? Right, well, yeah. Right? Would Picasso be, you know, the, the man that we know without his vigorous standards? that is vigorous training right and so yeah the, the first painting wasn't a cubist painting right exactly so like picasso had a system and so let's contrast van gogh again and a, a legendary painter he didn't have a system to run his business he was he was a great guy in systemizing his I mean, maybe that's not a fair comparison, but I'll finish the sentence anyway. But he had a great system to create art and uh, and de- develop his practice. But Picasso had a system where he understood the economics of what he was doing. And so he was creating um, a system that he, w- he could monetize. And so, you know, there's slightly two different things, but we are, we do live in a commerce universe right now. But... To get back to the point, you know, you can't get to greatness on accident. You can't be a great artist by winging it. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. You have to, A, surround yourself with talent that that is either just as good as you, preferably better than you, so that you're always being stretched. You have to dedicate time to it. Over long periods of time, maybe even longer than the ten thousand hours that, that um, Malcolm talks about, it's an endless pursuit of of you know of perfection, and that doesn't mean that I, you know I'm obsessed with the 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 putting Hayat off the grid or or putting twenty five twenty one k plugins on there. That's not what I'm talking about. The, the the obsession with you being as best as you can be, you know that's where that's where I obsess. You know, really studying the best of the best out there to find out what what incremental improvements I can make in my next pieces of art. And so, you can't get to that that one 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 percent or that or that half percent without sweat blood and tears you, you know there is there is no you know I'll do it like Rocky do it tomorrow there is none of that you know people are on top on top right now and, and you know if you want to have a, have a career you know not just be a weekend you know artist that takes dedication that takes focus that takes persistence and that you can't you can't learn it in a month a year you can't learn it in 10 years it's a lifetime's work yeah and it's a never ending kind of process, I guess, but you've got to understand though why are you doing it you know, and that's for me for some reason, you know I'm having these conversations with with people around me about and they're talking about yeah retirement retirement and like retire from what? You know what I mean, I love what I do, there's no retiring from this for me it's like you know, you, you if, and that's the difference. I think when it be when you when people, you know, are talking about uh, a job or a career or a vocation, like right, they're three different things. And when you see people who, who excel at what they do, they don't call it a job or a career. It's their like it's their life. It's their master. The masterpiece isn't a finished piece of work. It is the life they're living. You know, they pay. they pay attention to it. They nurture it every day. They work at it every day. There isn't like, what's the best plug-in? That's a moat mo- question. It's like, does it doesn't even come down to plugins or the canvas you're working on. It's about what do you believe about yourself. What's the legacy you want to leave behind? What's the stories you're telling? What's the purpose of you using the brushstroke that way? You you're using it. Why are you why do you hold the mouse like that? Why do you why do you dress like that to go to 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 your work environment? It's like it's it's like you 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 are on a, That's why they say you're on another planet. Right, because you were, you create your own universe, you know. And back to the beginning of the conversation, you said to me, "What what do you think creativity is? Creating your own universes, creating your own canvases. And to do that, you have to be your own person. You have to have your own mind. You have to tell your own stories. You isolate yourself by proxy of the uh, of, of the content and the ideas that you have. Nobody else can get it at first. So you you create this story and this idea." And and eventually, people inhabit it with their ideas.
2: Okay, let me ask you something specific uh, relating to this about your own career. You talked about going from making music to taking people through an experience, like as in, you know, that's a been, a been a feature. I think you you said in a prior interview of your own journey in making music. So, can you can you tell me about that, like in specifics, like in your own journey or whatever like whatever the right word is like what happened in that in practical terms in that journey between those two things
3: well you start off by emulation so that's the first thing you know i saw people doing something then i wanted to do what they did and then once i realized that i could do it over a period of time i create, started creating it by myself but after a while Everyone, everyone starts to sound the same, look the same, talk the same thing. You start to realize how do I tell, how do I do what I do in a way that nobody else can do it? So that that leads you on an investigation. It opens up this whole new way of trying to observe the art form. And so for me, I went back and I started studying great artists. I looked, I started reading books on. Or watching documentaries, should I say, on like Picasso, Andy Warhol, Jeff Coombs, and mostly, you know, not many people in music. I mean, the obvious ones, Michael Jackson, you know, I watched some documentaries on, you know, the Beatles and, you know, whatever ones I could find. But I'm looking for a certain pattern of people who rose above what their industry, industry levels were and they became these, you know icons as it were you know so mm. what were these people doing and what i found was that they stopped obeying the rules of the culture and they started to bend you know bend bend the rules they started to look at what are the the, the key signifiers that drive human behavior that drive you know people to want to want to have this have this out of body kind of experience and 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 it was the the, the 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 trip was to you know first of all it's, it's language right so I started to change my language I started to understand that if I was going to take people somewhere else I need to start describing it in a different way so I can't keep talking about music and thinking I'm gonna take people down this new place it's like you know what I discovered was if I called my music art or if I called my music a film that it changed the perception of it in people's minds and so you know it's like magic you think about what magic is magic is like using energy words casting spells and that's like the environment we live in look look, the word spelling you know for instance is being able to use, you know, numbers and symbols in a way that it creates an, it creates a, a reaction in, uh, as an effect in another person. And that's what great music does. That's what great film does. And so it's no surprise that, you know, Hollywood is named after the wand that Harry Potter uses or, or magicians use, right? So when we're talking about this stuff, it's like, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take you out of your normal, everyday, mundane lifestyle life and take you somewhere else for a period of time. So you can have this experience, you can, you can leave the whatever it is behind and then go on a journey. And so, what, what? When I realized that, it was like, okay. So, what am I actually? So then, you come back to the why. Like what am I actually doing? What am I? What, what do I want my audience to experience? What is the journey I want to take my audience on? So, you have to start asking yourself these different questions because after a while, I, I'm not making warhead again. I'm not making true stories again. I'm not making soul emotion again. I've done that. And so, if I'm progressing along my timeline, I have to be learning new ways to entertain people. I have to be learning new ways to entertain myself. I have to be learning new ways to keep excited about getting and getting up in the morning and go to spend, you know, eighteen hours a day in this in this in this dark room. And so, I need to make I need to make that interesting. And so, the exploration of, of the art form and finding out how far you can take it leads you down these interesting paths.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as you were saying that, what I mean, the, the question that popped into my head was, you know, when you when you talk about, you know, the the, like, I want to say the classic era of Bristol drum and bass jungle, of which you know you are one of the absolute leaders, and you know made the, some of the most defining tunes. Like, how much of that stuff? And I, I think I know you are going to how you are going to answer this, but I am going to ask the question in, in, anyway. anyway how heavy does it hang over you? Like as a kind of pressure to live up
3: to at least the perception of that that era and that music? I don't, I don't. I think, I think, I think um, in the Warhead era when, when, that, when that tune was being made, I think that was a, that was a break, <laughs> that was a break or make career defining moment for me. I wasn't having a good time up till then, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not sure if, most people knew that, but I, but I, I think I was making some tracks and they were, they were doing all right. Um, I think I was building up to it. Um, but. Okay. Okay. Let, let me, let me just stop you there because I think it'd be really useful
2: to have a little bit of context, like just, just behind this. Cause this is a suit. This is something that I, something I wasn't expecting to say. And I'd love you to explain it a little bit further with going back a, l- a little bit. So.
1: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
2: Oh, uh, uh, what came out It was it 95, 96, 96 Was it? So, at what point did you? At what point did you start making tunes? Actually, like, how long have you been doing up to that point?
3: Uh, I think I started actually making tunes probably when I was about twenty. Before then I was DJing so I got into the whole thing at 14 after watching wild it's like the next day me and my brothers created Fresh 4 a sort of hip-hop breakdance crew um, and that ran till we were about 17, 18 and then um, I, I discovered raving um, and, and got into that So which, which year would that have been? Um, probably like 1990 something like that yeah, and then really it was a lot of just experimenting at that time. So it was it was, I kind of, you know, my brother had a, a Casio FZ one sampler, and I just spent three years in his back room, you know, him teaching me how to use it, and then finally I, I cracked the code. Um, and then I was I was um, in the back room of Smith and Might studio with Dai and Sub. We were there for like years, like coming back from the raves. <clears throat> going back into the studio and just sort of emulating what we were hearing and experimenting. You know, we knew we had loads of brakes anyway, so we we understood the the what brakes most of it, what they were all using in the raves, we had all of them on the ultimate brake beats, and because we were scratch DJs, those were the brakes we were scratching, and that was the whole thing with the Bristol sound with like massive attack Wild Bunch then and too bad and FBI, you know, and UD four. You would scratch up brakes. And so, and quick mix. And so we just had all the breaks. We had had a massive record collection. So we'd come back and we'd just sample all these breaks and speed them up and just experiment, try to figure out what this, what we were hearing, but we want to do it our way. I loved Rave, but I didn't like like a lot of things about it. I loved hip hop, but it wasn't British then, you know, and, and making hip hop, we were just copying Americans, so that wasn't really going to fly. I was—I love techno, but that wasn't me. I was about the breaks. So you know, we were about the drums. We we loved the hip hop drums, and we just kind of ended up speeding them up. And then, you know, out of that, this whole idea started to blossom, which now people call jungle or drum and bass. But it was just this sound that we made, and um, and it it just kind of evolved out of that. Um, after doing that for a couple of years. <clears throat> me and Sub and Di we just had loads of tunes and we were like right what are we going to do with all this stuff you know um, and we go right well we need to start our own label and he's like right and then Sub said you know I know this guy Ronnie he's looking to start a label as well and he's like and he's like and we're like do you know what let's let's all sit down and have a meeting so we all they Ronnie and the other guys came to my flat I used to live in the top floor flat on Ashley Road on the corner just sort of next to Smith and Mighty's. And we, and I'd never, I'd seen Ronnie before. I mean, I knew of him. I knew of his brother. His brother was a scratch DJ in UD4, the general his name was. Uh, I'd never um, really met, met Ronnie or had, you know, had, had any lengthy conversation with him. I met him once in, uh, we both went for a job in a youth centre uh, to be a music Music coach. It's really funny. Yeah, he he got the job, uh, <laughs> okay. but it, but it was an inside job. It was an inside job. He ah. knew the, he knew he knew the people. After years later, he told me he knew the people. So it was just a formality. He had the job. But, um, and so so basically, what happened is in that in that that day, we sat down in my flat. He listen. We none of us knew what we were doing, but he played us about five tunes. We played five tunes, and they were all the same. They were all 160, 165. His thing was a bit more ragified. Our thing was a bit more hip-hopified, but it was exactly the same thing. We were both doing exactly the same thing, but we we had never met each other or spoken. And that was like, we all felt that was a moment, you know? We were like, right, we need to come together as this group. We didn't, we didn't have a name then, but we said, right. And it reminded me of starting a, the crew when, in my mum's front garden when we were 14. It was like, we decided then we were going to be this group and that was it really from that day really we were we were all inseparable for the next sort of almost 12 15 years um but you know we had the first really i had the first the first release on v records was me uh, fatal doe cp first release on full cycle was music box one side and resistor on the other side so yeah. Music Box was the one that everyone was playing on that one. My thing was the sort of sort of underground-y, not-so-obvious track. It's a bit sort of ravey, And the same thing with the Fatal Dose EP. It was very rave-orientated, and it didn't really catch the idea. It didn't, didn't really catch with the public. And so Ronnie put out the next tune, which was, I think, the Agility EP, and that just blew up. And so... The next two or three Ronnie tunes blew up where mine just sort of flatlined. Nothing really happened. Jazz note came out. It was a bit of sort of um, buzz about that. And I think probably about four or five releases on both labels, it was very quiet for me. It was tumbleweeds. And, um, And I think that is kind of like... It wasn't like there was nothing happening. I was building my own sort of brand with my own sound. And I wasn't... I wasn't about to sort of change my sound because I wasn't selling, but I was aware that you know it was a slow build.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think your stuff was much less kind of hooky, right? It was much less kind of yeah, in your face and kind of obvious. Um, compared, yeah, I mean, that's that my uh, that's my recollection of it as well. And actually, you know, it's, it's funny because I mean, you're releasing a lot of the old stuff um, remastered on you at the moment, so I was I went went back to it today and listened to it, and I've got to say it's it is really distinctive sounding that's what's one thing i can really take away from it. it absolutely sounds like there's nothing else like that stuff it really is like but it's not like that obvious early 90s kind of ravey jungle
3: stuff which was was becoming big right no it wasn't it was nothing like it and i think what was happening at that time was the scene was changing so a lot of those djs that when we came into it so there was a few things that were happening at the same time when we came into it, there were DJs and there were producers and they were, they were not the same people. So the DJs, well, there it'd be one or two, but there wasn't like it is today. Like now it's, it's normal to be both. Back then, the DJs played the music that the producers gave them. The producers very rarely went to the dance. So they couldn't hear how these tracks sounded together when they were mixed together. And so what we, what our thing was, we were doing both. So we were engineering music to fit the DJ style of playing really quickly. So we were engineering this music. The, the, the DJs who were DJing just, you know, the best of what was going on and what was going on then, they were still just playing what they were playing they weren't you know our music was this this new hybrid sound of the rave and it was this jungle thing but it was so different it just took a while for it to sort of you know that transition for the music to happen and yeah. so you know we created, you know, not not just for for psycho, but a lot of the, you know, you know the the Oxford Boys and metalheads and that, and then um, Diego and um, Four Hero, where they were formatting the music for DJing, you know, yeah. and that was the change that was going on, and so. The beat started to change, so it went from this really chaotic jungle sound to the more smoother two step of what is is popular today. but that was an innovation because of people needed to mix quickly right and so right yeah yeah right so that that was happening there was that that was going on that was in, innovating, and so you could hear this music morphing, and it happened really quickly, you know from its initial inception to becoming it cha- it was changing really rapidly, you know. We were innovate. Everyone was in it. That was probably the most innovative period in Jungle, even today. There was so much every label sounded different every label every artist on that label had their own sound that was within within the brand of the label and everybody was pushing everybody was like being pushed and you know music house was this place where you'd go and hear the freshest tunes the most you know upfront tunes and you'd hear what what how people were doing what they were doing and how how everyone was pushing the envelope and so you know, I was I was listening to all of this like everybody else, but I was stay, I was like, I'm going to keep doing what I do because I'm I'm going to stay in my lane. And so, I went to the studio one day and I heard um, Ronnie and Di making Mad Professor. Now, that tune's a fucking monster. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fucking monster. <laughs> and uh, I went in the studio and I was like it's like guys what the fuck is this you know what I mean I was, <laughs> they just screwed up their faces and turned up even louder They're like saying fuck you Craster and I was like and like listen we were really competitive like we never shared breaks <laughs> you know what I mean uh, we were like really wow nah, okay. we like you know and we like we tried to one up each other all the time it's like I tried to go to like one time we were in New York and we said um Let's all meet up down in a lobby at like, you know, ten o'clock and we'd all go to the record shop together. You'd be down in you'd be in the lobby at nine because you didn't want to wait and everyone else would be there and be like, Oh, you're right, 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 right. You know, and it was like a little joke between us, but we were we were deadly serious. We would just want listen, we wanted to outdo each other, we wanted to outdo the other labels. Like everybody was like, you know, on the hit list and everybody got it, you know. Um so yeah, this tune's tearing the fucking speakers out, and I'm like, "What the fuck is this?" And so I was like, "Yeah, all right, guys, see you later." And I went home, and I made Warhead.
2: Wow. Okay. I mean, that's that's so great. I mean, because I, uh, you know, competition's the right word, right? And it's but it's good nature competition, but it's also, it also has an edge to it, and that can be so creative. You know, it really can get the best out of best out
3: of you. It really can in a way which is very difficult to replicate, actually. Yeah, I mean, we loved it. We loved that whole, you know, one-upmanship, you know, and and it drove us, you know. Every week, we would meet at some one of our houses and we would play each other our week's worth of work. And undoubtedly, there were about four or five tunes and they were just getting better and better and better and better. And we were just pushing each other and driving each other. And our sets just became legendary. You know, we just had so many, you know, tunes with variations, and you know, you know. And then when we started doubling up, you started doing the Comanche or the Scorpio or the. You know the um, the gang related and the masks and the swabies and the, you know it's like
2: yeah there were so many different aliases weren't there I mean as a you know as a kind of record buyer at the time it was it was really exciting to watch it you know and it was it was real kind of like you know when there was a new one come out it was just like oh I got to get this one like down to down to black market or whatever and it was it was such an exciting time just you know across the board but it, just to go back to what we, you know what brought us here you know you mentioned that. It was almost make or break so were you sort of reaching the end of
3: your no i think what happened was that it was just trickling along and, and there wasn't a time i was just going to stop or something but it just wasn't there was definitely a career before and after warhead let's just say that right right yeah. so before yeah. warhead it was like full cycle you know, Ronnie, Ronnie, size, it was crust, it was die, you know, Ronnie was getting a lot of success, his music was, it was really, you know, the sort of, the obvious one out of everybody, he was the one that was sort of, most people were talking about, you know, then it was like, you know, me, then it was die, and it was sub, you know, um, then I made Warhead, and for the first sort of, eight or nine months, it was like, it was, a, it was a tune that, divided the crowd (laughs) let's just say that you know when (laughs) in the beginning when we all played it it just it would kill the dance people just stopped dancing and it was like it was really like getting death stares it was really hard really yes yeah it was so difficult in the beginning you know some DJs were like what is this some DJs you know now big DJs back then was like what is this 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 ain't gonna never run the intro's too long. Uh, you know, it's just it's just horrible bass sound. Da, 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 da. And I was and I kindly listen. The thing is, when I made it, I I really I was in my b boy era. So War Warhead was like me. It, that was my version of making a Wu Tang hip hop tune. I was listening to a lot of Wu Tang, a lot of hip hop, and I was just interpreting that into my jungle. And for me, when I made Warhead, that was like, you know. A, a real sort of ma- my masterpiece, my avant-garde tune that fitted in to the dance that would stand out. So I had this whole ideology about, you know, making something that doesn't fit in, but fits in. And I was, you know, I was very conscious about of, of doing that. And so... F- I looked at what everyone else was doing. Everyone has short intros. I said, right, I'm going to double the intro. Everyone has two minute intro. I'm going to have a four minute intro. Everyone has this intro with no sounds in it. And really simple. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have an intro with this loud fucking sound and a really stupid bass in the beginning. And then, and then everyone has a drop at this point. I'm going to keep going. And then I'm going to have these injuries. These risers. And so I completely reversed the rules of the game. Uh, and, and re-engineered it by just doing the complete opposite of what everyone else was doing at that time and that was quite a conscious decision and I did the same thing with Soul Emotion and True Stories making, you know, Brief Encounters that was where it really came from everyone was making a six minute tune I said I'm going to make a twelve minute tune everyone uses one bass I'm going to use eight basses and so I completely sort of you know, understood the science of that and kind of flipped it on its head and so with Warhead it was complete, again. It was this completely, you know, off-key arrangement where it just completely didn't do what anyone else expected it to do. So it just took a long time for people to, to get. And so between, you know, I probably finished it in February, and then up, right up until December, it was it was clearing dance floors. And then we had like it was like a break. You know, I remember playing it, and I can see people were reacting to it differently. And then from then, for about another three months, the reports that were coming back was that this tune was, this tune was tearing down the dancers. And then six months, eight months in, I started to see it myself. Like, you couldn't even play the intro. <laughs> it was like you had to rewind it. The MCs, rewind, rewind. And then that- yeah, as soon as you heard the little siren things that come in, right? As soon as people heard that, it was like, you know, put up. Yeah, and that went on, and that went on for years, and then, and then, and then, then I, then my career went like a hockey stick. Yeah, I,
2: I just realised that I was, I was wrong. It was '97, wasn't it, that it came out? I thought, I, th- I figured it was, it was before that, and actually, it com- that completely messes up my timeline of what I thought the whole thing was. Because I, so represent was really happening then, right? You were kind of right in the middle of it, I guess. No, represent came after. Well, I. Didn't a brown paper bag came out in ninety seven as well, right? Um I'm I'm looking at Discogs now, so I so I know I'm right. Um but uh but the question I was gonna ask you really was about what the kind of dynamic within the group was like. Because obviously um, Represent was seen as you know, it's a Ronnie Size Represent, like his name's at the top, but you guys were all sort of nominally phenomenally part of it too. So I mean, you touched on it a little bit before there. Like, you know, you said that, you know, Ronnie was getting most of the attention and stuff. How did the rest of you, I mean, so how did you all interact in that period? Like, I mean, what was what
3: was the group dynamic? I mean, we were, listen, we were, you know, we were kind of the whole, we had the whole B-boy mentality and, the, and that was just to be original. So for us, it was like nothing could really change, you know, I think it changed about five years in when we were still doing represent and and we were touring a lot. That's when things started to change. I think the problem happened when we stopped being in the studio for long periods of time. That's when people yeah. started to feel it because we didn't have a lot of um, product. And I think yeah. one, one because well, we, we lived in a studio. You know, if you wanted to find any of us prior to that we'd always be in the studio none of us really had relationships you know we were married to each other so we, would, we lived in the studio and I think what happened with represent it was it, it needed our attention just like the way that we built full cycle to what it became we were living it and breathing it to get represent to where it ended up being what it ended up being we had to live it and breathe it so that meant we couldn't live and breathe full cycle so we were on the road traveling for years. You know, me and Ronnie were the main um, people doing all the interviews in the press. So that that was very took its toll on both of us. You know, and traveling around. In the beginning, it was great because it was like school bus touring with your mates for for a couple of, for about the first year. It was great. Second year, it was work. Third year, it was like okay, seeing you a lot too much. <laughs> And then, you know, the fourth year, it was like, okay, I'm not being paid enough for this. Um, and so, yeah, it's just like, it, it just took its toll. I think if we could have found a way to keep making music on the road, to keep, you know, what we were doing um, and do it simultaneously, I think probably it would have been a different outcome. We just didn't, we, we tried to use the technology on the road, but pro, the the Pro Tools and stuff wasn't ready for that. And so it was just difficult. It was challenging. It was, you know... It was a it was an amazing amazing life changing experience and you know what we managed to create you know four guys from broken homes and council estates who were said that we weren't you know going to amount to anything we 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 conquered the planet with with music that we made in our bedroom <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying so we did live the dream you know and so I'm always going to be eternally grateful for that experience because on paper, I was never supposed to leave my, my council estate.
2: Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, let, let me ask you, more generally in that period, like that was the, I mean, it's a cliche, but like golden era of drum drum and bass. But you guys were, I mean, the, the Bristol, quite quite Bristol sound was very much seen as its own thing. And, you know, as you described it, were kind of related to other bits of it too. But how much did you guys feel... Like ownership or I'm not sure if that's the right word but like how much of the drum and bass thing did you feel you know, how, how, much, how, much, how much was the scene per se important to you as opposed to just your output
3: yeah it was everything it was everything we created our own thing like how often do you get to say that you know so we protected it fiercely you know we still do in our own way you know, we were loyal to the cause. We created something for people just like us. And I remember, but when we were when it started to kick off, I remember like going to these these clubs back in the day, and it was like church. You know, yeah. it, it was like a religious experience playing jungle and converting people. You know, you'd see some people not dancing, kind of screwing their face up. Because in the beginning, some of the places we went to, we'd come on after house DJs or hip hop DJs, and it was like a sort of multi-genre things. It wasn't until quite later on that it just became these pure jungle nights. But in the, in the beginning, you had, you know, you had to do a lot of converting. You know, we were being sent all the early jungle DJs. We were being sent to these remote places around the world, especially in Eastern Europe. It was very different than it is now people didn't know the music people didn't know the sound they were just hearing these mixtapes from Cool FM or from Horace in Camden Market They and they would you know you know we got credit Horace as well this guy from Camden he, he used to have these tapes sell, sell, sell jungle tapes but Lot so many people I've met around the world say that bec- it's, they got into the jungle because they heard it from buying a mixtape from this guy really? yeah and so, you know, I, I met my drummer who'd become one of my best friends, uh, my very, very good friend, Yuval Bay. He heard a mixtape from when he was on tour. He used to be in a rock band called Soul Coffin. He came to London, bought one of these mixtapes, heard our music, got in contact with us, took us on tour of America with his band. So, you know, those type of things were, 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 were you know, were, were happening because of the way that people were discovering the music, and so yeah, it's, it was a, it, it 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 became this thing where we had to protect it. It was a newborn, so we had to protect it. We've had we were all the ambassadors, you know the 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 people you still hear about today. The Goldies, the Grooves, the Fabios, the Brian G's, the Frost, the Mickey Finns, the Kenny Kens these guys were the ambassadors. We were the ones that felt like that's why music house was so important in the beginning because when you went to music house, you couldn't play anything subpar. They wouldn't let you cut it. Or if you cut it. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Or if you did cut it, or if you even had the balls to play it in front of them, then right so it was like you were being policed but unconsciously so there was a standard we all understood the music had to be on and it was like we all agreed it was like we all kind of unconsciously agreed we, we're, we, we are all representing this music so therefore it needs to be this it needs to be at this level. And when, every time you go to Cutting House, you know, I'd hear an Ed Russian optical tune and the mix downs on it were like, right, that's the level, is it? And then, the, <laughs> right, right? Yeah. right? And, then, yeah. and then the next week you go there and you'd hear a Dillinger tune and the bass line would be fucking killing it. Right, that's what the bass is supposed to be like, you know, and, right? And then, you know, you'd hear one of our tunes and we would be mashing up the drums. Oh, that's what the drums are supposed to sound like. And so everybody was setting the levels. And everyone was pushing it, you know. And you know, we would call each other late at night sometimes, like when when we wanted tips or wanted help with trying to get a bass to sit right or trying to get the drums. You call Dillinger, you call Lemon, you call Andy C, you call Goldie, you call you call someone, and everyone would be like, "Yeah, this is what this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing it." And so it was a community. We all understood what we were doing. We all understood the. the, I think we all intuitively understood the nature of 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 what we were creating and, and the legacy about it, even though that's not what we were doing. It's like, we were building a foundation. You know, we were building something that, it was traveling the world. Like, we weren't traveling at that point, but the cassettes were, Kiss, Cool FM was, you know. And then when it got onto radio, we were doing Galaxy Radio in Bristol. We were doing, uh, and, then, and then One in the Jungle from Radio 1. Now it's becoming like, for us regional in London it was like becoming national and then global and it was just this underground thing that sort of took on a life of his own but it had to it had to be nurtured at that, at that point it, we couldn't just let it just run wild and we policed it as well people would try to come in and claim it we were like nah it's not you mate it's not you okay that's that's, that's the exact thing I wanted to ask you about actually so last week on the show
2: uh, Scream was on And we were talking about early dubstep scene, which I was involved with too, and. You know, there was such a well, after a few years of Dubstep that going nowhere, there was a you know this big kind of frenzied period of everyone wearing a bit of it and like there, you know, it became really, really commercially viable and commercially interesting for people. So and yeah, you know, those of us who had been around since day one, of course, there was a there was a degree of well, there was there was different reactions, right? So quite a lot of us felt very protective towards it and very, you know, not at all comfortable by for example there being a Britney Spears dubstep shit but then what Scream said last week and I never heard him say it before he was saying he was absolutely fine and really quite encouraging of anyone who wanted to do anything with it because he just felt proud that, that you know it's something that he'd been involved with starting was getting that much attention which is a completely different way of looking at it but it's you know it's it's really interesting the way people react in different ways but yeah my my you know from looking at the drum and bass scene from from afar I always had the impression that you guys were very protective of the music is that right
3: yeah yeah we were you know we wanted to make sure that it was represented in a way that still had the sound of the culture in it you know that was that was very important to us you know and we, we, we kept that tight it was very difficult to get into the scene you know um, and it was like you had to go through a label you know you, you couldn't go you couldn't get a, a gig at Metalheads unless you were you know a proper name you couldn't go and play at Samantha's or uh, Bar Rumba for V unless you were a proper name you know you couldn't so you couldn't do a lot of these things because we were trying to make sure that the standard stayed high you know the la- the labels had high standards the clubs had high standards and jungle was a hard music to make it was a hard music to mix but if you could get it right and you could represent anyone anyone could start their own label and be and be welcomed in but the, you had to meet those standards and that was just like any you know just just any business any business model uh, it has to have a high moat so that they can control it and so We just wanted to make sure, like I said, that, you know, the culture was protected. And I think, and it was, and you can hear how people talk about that era. I think we did a good job. You know, we we made sure that, you know, you know, that that everyone's legacy is intact and everyone's going to be remembered for their contributions. You know, it's it's etched in stone. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I had... Debridge on the show a while back and we talked about this kind of era and obviously he was in bad company at the time and they had you know a, a really high degree of like international success and they were doing the whole touring thing I guess similar to you guys um I mean they didn't have quite the same level of i guess commercial success you when know, the Mercury music prize or whatever do you know what I mean but they were certainly doing the doing the international circuit and you know he's he was he was remembering there being a point at which um like control of it was lost a little bit, and he him falling out of love a little bit with it. Um, I guess uh, uh, falling out of love with the kind of rave, what, what 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 the rave element turned into, right? So the music the music changed, I guess, is sort of after two thousand, maybe into the early two thousands, and it becoming just a bit. A bit too lowest common denominator. I, I'm not sure if he quite used that term, but it was. You know, I think you I think you'd rec- recognize that that sort of time period. So, how was it for you guys in that time? Because my my impression of it was that you you kept pretty tight control of your own sound, and it, it was, you know, it obviously developed over time, but it was still
3: recognizable as as you guys. Yeah, I think technology played a massive part at that point. You know, that was when Logic came out, Reasons came out. Pro Tools was out, but it became, you start, people started to use it to make dance music. And I think that's when the barrier to entry became, you know, uh, lowered. And, and with the sample packs and things like that. Um, <clears throat> two things. One, great that the music is now reaching more people, you know, um, and yeah, I would definitely agree with Scream that the of what became thing you know what I started to see event after, after 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 a period of time like we, I can remember being in New York and hip hop people were talking about our music and that blew my mind like you know my dream was to go to New York I remember listening to WBS tapes and DJ Red Alert and finally I was in New York and it was like what I couldn't you know it just completely blew my mind and then Hearing hip hop people wanting to know about jungle, you know, we got to work with Methra Man and Red Man, Zach Della Rock or Saul Williams, and that was like, you know, mind blowing that we could collaborate with these people who were people we were listening to and we were fans of. Now we were like in the studio working with them. So to me, that was amazing that the music had gone that far, the music had traveled that far, the music was having an influence. That far, and then we started to hear American music, you know, Australian jungle, European jungle. And I think that when it starts to spread out, when it starts to impact people, and people, I think at the time as well, people, but some people were doing it, it's just as good as what we were doing it. And a lot of the time, I think what the thing, the thing with jungle is it does command, you know, the cult like mindset you know, and the fanaticism of producers and they do honour it in the sense that they do keep it tight, you know, in, but, you know, you do get a few, few ones that get, (laughs) get away and, (laughs) and, and yeah, and there's, and I think, you know, looking back, yeah, of course, you know, I think, I think the over commercialization of any culture is a problem when, and, and definitely we did suffer from that and I think that, you know, I I, I agree with, with Darren. I did feel a way a bit where it became, you know, I didn't think that people who were getting attention deserved it or earned it yet. Um and the radio obviously are trying to just play the latest thing so they'll they'll just play what they think is the latest tune but doesn't represent the culture and and, and then all of a sudden I remember as well, towards I think Fabric when we started to uh, do Fabric, that was the start of a whole new wave of, of popularity for the sound. You know, you get a lot of... That was a very international club. When we started to do The End, I noticed we had an international audience. I think The End, though, was still an underground club and it still had that underground kind of notoriety about it. And yeah. it, it, when we did our nights there you know, it was different. It was just so different. We, we It was an international crowd, but it was still a hardcore jungle crowd. You know, it was a hardcore experimental dance music crowd. I think, you know, I think when it went to Fabric, because you had so many different rooms and they tried to cater for lots of different people, it, the crowd slightly changed. And I, and I think it was a bit more of a, still a, a jungle crowd, but... I don't think they was as a hardcore as, you know, it's my maybe my perception, but I don't think anyone was such a hardcore crowd as the end was, maybe, but it, Fabric was a huge club. It was an international um renowned club, you know. Um um I was fortunate enough to play at The Womb in Japan, um, Twilos in New York, um um what's that big Paradiso in in um in Amsterdam, and in all these clubs, they're the its the same similar type of vibe. It's you—you're attracting international travelers who are curious, so you'll get you'll get as you know maybe forty percent hardcore junglists, and then I think the rest of it is because it's it's a tourist hotspot. You're going to get people who are just coming in; they might have heard the brand name. That, you know, and listen—that's a testament to what we were achieving. That we became brand names. You know, you—you you know, it's not—you know, we—we we, we were fortunate. We had a—we had a residency in the end. We had a residency in Bristol Club Lakota. We had a residency in um, Fabric. We had a residency in The Womb. We had a residency in Twilos. There's not many people who get the opportunity to travel the world like that. You know, and that's that's because of the music we were making, not because we were good looking DJs, like we were making groundbreaking, innovative, legendary status music that these clubs who were on the cutting edge of culture wanted to be associated with. And so, you know, that that comes with the with the territory. And of course, once you start doing that, you get a whole new audience. So in those audiences you get the Giles Petersons, you get the James Lavelles, you get the Paul Martins, you get the the Vir- heads of Virgin, the heads of Warner Brothers, the publishing companies, and that's when it starts to change. You know, we never had a publishing company, and all of a sudden we get approached by publishing companies. We weren't do, we were doing jungle remixes. Now we're doing remixes for majors we were on Full Cycle and V Records and we started Dope Dragon and Philly Blunt. Now we were getting acts to be signed to Mo Wax, to Virgin, to, to Universal. And so, and that all, you can feel, you can, we saw the timeline expand along that, exactly as I said. It was like, one minute we were independent, next minute we're doing, you know, remixes for independent underground labels and now we're doing remixes for majors. They're paying us this much, now they're paying us how much? <laughs> right <laughs> then it's like we're touring these you know, two three hundred people clubs now we're on tour buses with Galliano driving around Europe it's like it was surreal you know one, one minute we're walking down you know the offices of Full Cycle four years later we're walking down the offices of Def Jam in New York walking past Run MC. it's like it's, it was surreal and so, at the time, you're just going through this experience. It, that's that's what the music does. That's that's what the timeline was 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 hap- that's that, that's how the timeline happened for us. And so, you know, at the time, we're just we're just like this is what we're making this music, and now more people are hearing it. More and more clubs are are being are, are asking us to do shows there and then when represent happened that was like completely just ridiculous it was you know no one expected what was you know we were not prepared for what that was going to do to any of us personally or or professionally
2: yeah okay that's an interesting way of putting it so what did it do to you personally
3: it changed it again it changed my life again me personally you know i went from being dj cross to being you know a member of this band You know, we were like an all-star band. You know, one minute we were these... It was full cycle and these, you know, eventually superstar DJs to represent with an all-star band. You know, everybody in that band was somebody, you know, DJ-wise on the jungle thing. We were the pinnacle of our jungle status and then we went to create this super group you know, and we were com- com- being compared to to, to Wu Tang Clan.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. But what does it do to you psychologically? I mean, like you know, you talked. I think
3: you talked, well, you
2: touched upon the uh, the idea of you know dealing with <coughs> excuse me <coughs> dealing with success and you know the, the 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 pressure that success can
3: bring with it. Like, what was it like for you guys at that point? I don't think that. Well, it, it it takes you out of your. I think it, if if I had a normal life, it it would have been abnormal. But to be honest, from 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 when we did Fresh Four when I was nineteen, my life be, was about the music anyway. So by the time we came to doing Represent, it didn't feel any different from where I where we come from because we were getting a lot of success we were getting a lot of attention we were getting a lot of press because of full cycle when we did when we did represent that just took that whole energy to a bigger audience we were doing more mainstream stuff i think personally what it what it did is that it it did put i think it put a strain on on i don't think it was a strain i just think it just it it, it sped up our timelines in the sense that we were just completely busy all of the time, but there was no personal life. We were the only people we had relationship with for about two or three, for about five years, I guess we were only see each other. We were, we were living with each other on, on buses for years. When we come home, I didn't go out. I wasn't socializing. I didn't have a relationship. If I did, it, it, I couldn't hold one down. So I wasn't there. And, you know, yeah. um, and so it was. It was a it was a hectic lifestyle, living out of a suitcase, and and always you know having your headphones on on the back of the bus in these in these worlds. It became quite insular for a long time. After I think the first two years was like the rock, the great rock and roll, or the great jungle swindle. I think that was brilliant because you know yeah. it was just new, it was exciting. And then I think after that. Um, I think after that, it became, it became a job. And then, and then, I think for me anyway, um, it became, it, it, it would be, it just, it, was, it became really hard work because I wasn't in the studio. I lived and breathed the studio. That was my temple. And when I, when I was out of it for long periods of time, I think when my career, personal career, started to suffer was when I never had a release that for almost two years. But, Overall, the brand was massive, it was huge um but I think we were all where like aware that although it was doing something amazing, we were all individually kind of unconsciously i guess anxious because we we weren't putting out any products on full cycle, and that was our that was our baby as well,
2: yeah, I guess when you come from that real. So, uh, it's kind of grassroots thing where it's just you know you're just there with your friends comparing tunes in the studio the whole time and then you're transported into this world where like you say it's it's twenty four seven and it's not at home right it's it's
3: it's a comp- it couldn't be more of a different environment yeah and so the reason why I say we weren't prepared for it because my, my the the comparison is when you like when you start a band the whole thing about a band is that you are preparing to tour, go on the road and the band is geared up to these, whoever, how many members is it? The the band is set up to play these gigs and to, and that is the band life. Like my friend, when I, when I, Yuval, when I met him, they were just on this continual tour around America. They hardly went home. They would finish... By the time they went around America once, it would take a year. They'd go back to the the first time they played and they would play to a a bigger audience. And they did that for years and they were just doing that. They were cycling around. So that, to me, they understood that sort of tour mentality. They knew that that's what they you know, that's how they made their, their business, their brand. And that's the lifestyle that touring bands had. We didn't come from that. We came from being weekend DJs and we'd go home in a week. And then, and then we transitioned into these, you know, these into a band, but it wasn't, that wasn't our life. That wasn't our lifestyle. You know, we were like, well, yeah, yeah, that's that's the difference, isn't it? Because I suppose with a with a with a band, when you're when you're playing
2: a show, that that is the bread and butter, right? Because you're playing with your friends, and the the kind of um, like the chemistry within the band comes from playing together a lot. But if you get your chemistry from sitting in the studio, and then that gets taken away from you, then that's gonna it's gonna be a problem,
3: isn't it? Eventually, I guess. Yeah, and 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 it was it did be, be it did become a problem for all of us after a period of time, and I think. When the the light, when the lights are not on you and you're sat on a bus, it becomes quite lonely. Even though you're with all your, your friends, you you're starting to, you know, it becomes, you know, a different a different because you because you do get your nourishment from being creative by being it, having fun in that space. And if you're on this bus listen it's a, it's a it's a it's a hard one cuz you are traveling and seeing the world and and enjoying it and you know most people say well what are you grumbling for you got paid loads of money and stuff but you realize it's not all you know I you know I quickly realized it wasn't about the money cuz the money wasn't making me happy I I did find out for myself it didn't make me happy and nothing was making me happy and you know that and after a while I, I started to make different decisions different choices but um yeah, it was it was it was definitely a challenge, you know. And like I said, because we weren't career, you know, um live band people, it it was we were thinking differently about it, you know. We didn't go into the we did go into the studio on occasions as represent to try and, and we did do the second album as re, as a crew, and that was fun. I did enjoy it. We all enjoyed that. I think the third album we didn't didn't have that much we didn't work that way I think because a lot of us wanted to sort of get back to um back to our own careers and our own lives and I think that I think and I think that was probably the under, underlying sort of conversation like nobody expected represent to do what it did so I think we were going to pop in have a good time and then get back to what we normally do and it just lasted for about six or seven years. Right. Yeah. And it was like, it just never went, it never went back. Do you know what I mean? And I think that that's what, that's what we didn't, we weren't prepared for. We just weren't prepared for the, for the success and, and what it, what it meant for us to have that level of success, you know?
2: Yeah.
3: So, I mean, which I guess eventually led you to
2: taking, I suppose, what, how long did you take a break for? Seven years. Seven years, right? So, um, what was the, Was there a like a moment which made that was like a you know was a, a final straw, or was it? Uh, tell me about that decision.
3: Yeah, I think I woke up one night in our one of our clubs, um, you know, and just realised that I wasn't happy, and we'd achieved everything we'd set out to achieve and more. And I was feeling like the worst I'd ever felt in my life. And I didn't understand how that was possible. It just didn't make any sense. You know, we'd we'd conquered the world, we'd won. But I felt empty, lonely, um, unfulfilled. And I I knew if I was going to, if I carried on, that it wasn't going to end well. And... I would probably have made this I'd probably been thinking about it for two years, but I think that night was I made the decision that I needed to step away um and that was hard to do that was heartbreaking really um you know you move move away from something that you created and I just I just needed a break I needed to stop doing what I was doing and I wasn't being creative in the studio and I didn't you know we didn't have at that point there we didn't have a peer like a group of people who could give us a clear direction of what we should be doing next with with our lives or with our careers and so the message what we were getting was just keep doing what you're doing and for me you know I didn't want to keep paying someone's mortgage so I thought the, I need to just take a step back and figure out what I want, what's going to make me happy again, or what's going to what's going to get me excited again. And so, you know, it 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 was this whole thing for me. But I, th- I think you know it, it it really it really came down to this whole idea that you know I invented crust because you know Kirk Thompson was. A a quite a shy guy that you didn't really figure out who he was or find a place in the environment he grew up you know and when he saw the film Wildstar he immediately understood the significance of what we what was going on 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 the TV and so Crust was born like Crust could be a break dancer Crust could be a rapper Crust could be a graffiti guy Crust could be a DJ and 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 you know, when when I could when he was when I was in that character in that mode, you know, I I got respect, I got significance, I was somebody, and that's how I lived my life for, you know, for those twenty years. But but it ran out of steam. It didn't. I never had the I never had the second act. You know, I just I just it was just this one act and. You know if I would have you know obviously if I don't know what I know now I would have had the second and third act already ready to go but I just didn't and and so I needed to take some time out and I did and it was it was amazing it was hard in the beginning I think for the first two years it was really hard because I felt like I was you know I was in a, a divorce or something it was hard work
2: yeah I actually did something similar I basically toured really hard as a dj for pretty much 10 years and yeah over 100 shows a year sort of thing and then took a took a year off and actually the year off i took was 2019 which is the worst year you can take off because it t- turned into three years off but yeah i mean i had a similar sort of thing i felt it's almost like well initially there was a there was a huge relief and then after a couple of months it was like you just feel like well what do i what do i do with myself now you know so how did you deal with that
3: well, it, my yeah, my identity was tied up in crust, so I didn't know who I was, you know. And so I had an experience when I was about nineteen. I had an out of body experience, and I just remember like floating up above the planet and looking down, and it was just this really beautiful, you know, moment. And I remember sitting in my house, like when I when I left when I left the se- left everything and I just asked myself a question like where has that guy gone you know where's that guy gone and and that was it really I you know I just had a moment and and had to just reflect on trying to find that that guy again and so that was my mission I started to read books started to study started to meditate just got healthy again started drinking lots of water and going for walks rides and just kind of just rebuilt myself and started studying and then i remembered like when i was when we were touring people kept coming up to me and saying oh, how did you start a label how did you become a dj and because that's all i'd ever known i couldn't understand why these people couldn't do it and so i kind of just revisited that question i said well how did we become producers like how did we start the label and i just i just sat down and just reverse engineered it and then what I started to do was <clears throat> I started to read books about entrepreneurship about business. Um and funny enough is as that was happening I was still doing DJ gigs here and there it wasn't it wasn't to the level that it was in the peak but I was still travelling a bit. Um and when I go to the airport I'd always buy the Harvard Business Review <laughs> and uh I thought it would help me <laughs> make me look more intelligent, right? But also, as well, there was a part in the back that would always have about creative businesses, and it would say, and it had this headline: "Disruptive business." Da, 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 da. And I'd read the because I can. I very few of the articles I was interested in. It was very highly, I high. high you know, business stuff, numbers, da, da, da. But these articles in the back, there was always two or three articles and it was always about disruption, creativity. And I started to read these articles and I started to get a different idea about business because before then I didn't like business. For me, it had a bad name it was stuffy, it was, you know, it was corporate, it was, you know, only people who had degrees or PhDs could be in business or start one. And I started to read these articles and I started to get a different idea about what business was. And I was pleasantly shocked. So I started reading books, you know, the, the, uh, the, the nine faces of innovation. I started following companies like RGA and I started looking at, uh, other creative companies and started reading Fast Company Wired and it was like all of a sudden I had found this sort of area in business that I started to love it was like wow business is creative what these people are being creative in advertising and marketing and oh, what business can be creative And so I developed this model where I, I said right I'm going to start a business a creative business I mean I was already in one and I just never thought of full cycle as a business but I started to think, right, I want to create this business which teaches people how to think creatively, you know. And that's where the whole idea about disruptive patterns came from. So I started to do, just talk to people initially, just do one-on-ones. And then I got asked to do some, some, small, some schools and then youth clubs and then colleges. And it just grew out of that. Um, and to me... I got the same out of that as I did DJing, and it was v- really, really exciting and rewarding. And
2: really, yes, that's interesting. Let me let me just ask you about that quickly. I mean, because I guess there's an element of in the kind of stuff I, I'm, I'm gathering you were doing. There's a pretty big element of performance to that, right? If you're making that kind of, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a slightly different. It's probably a less egotistical performance than you uh you
3: do as a DJ or you're on stage or is it I don't know you tell me Well yeah I mean I I always said that I was do I was performing without the decks you know I tried I tried to make my talks and workshops as entertaining as possible so I would be very animated I would talk and I would shout and I'd make jokes and I would do analogies I'd uh, do case studies. I would, you know, I would. I'd learn NLP as well. So NLP is neuro linguistic programming. I learned techniques around how to help people undo unconscious biases, negative thoughts, and limiting beliefs. And I would do sessions in, you know, with the audience. So I'd pick somebody with a problem, and we work on it there and there. And I would help them see something differently. And through that, they would have an aha moment. And so, it, I'd be, you know, I kind of kind of got a name you know for for somebody who could like really understand the psychological aspects of creativity and why people were stuck or why people were blocked or why people were having these you know um, negative self-talk and so I started to sort of figure out that, okay, I could help people coach them based on my journey and what we did creatively. But I was starting to see people who really you know, were in full-time employment, but they were only in that because they thought they couldn't make a living following their passion. So I started to help people make that transition. You know get out of those jobs that they they thought they needed to do and then get back into their dreams and their their hopes and their and their desires um, and that's what initially disruptive patterns was doing. I was helping a, a level uh, of people do that also going into these colleges, helping younger people before they you know in when they were in the music colleges helping them think differently about how to build a unique brand how to tell their your their own story and how to you know f- create something that is you know of significance something that's going to stand out something that is unique and so I had these sort of two strands of the creative creativity going simultaneously and then and then that got to you know I was doing some advertising agencies I was doing a couple of corporates a couple of universities and then I started to do private clients do what do one-on-ones and then that went on for, you know, a good six or seven years. And it got to a point where I thought, you know, I thought I had enough, you know, I'd done enough and I I started to feel the itch of music again. And so that's when I started to get back into music. And, you know, I was using a lot of those techniques that I was learning on myself. Um, and so the culmination of all of that is the edge of everything. You know, that is that is me, you know, learn, having learned all those techniques practice them use those you know all those articles you read it, or me explaining how i was thinking and the tools that i was using to create that album and, the, and to produce a piece of content and and, and uh, you know deliver that to the world based on those whole ideas and and so then through the pandemic you know what i ended up doing was i kind of just transitioned my the business from from disruptive patterns to adapt the canvas so that's my that's what I'm using as my vehicle now and I work in a similar similar place but more to a sort of you know managers director level coaching and you know entrepreneurs who in the creative industry who who are struggling to get that their businesses off the ground or they want to work they want you know bespoke coaching. I kind of sort of shifted into that space with it.
2: Yeah, tell me a little bit more about um, because in the, the, the link between making like all of that stuff that you've just described, in terms of um, you know the, the coaching side and the kind of th- thinking about creativity in an abstract way, um, but then also the, the album that you made and actually we had Damien on the show before we talked a little bit about that with him as well. It's a really great album, I have to say. Um, but yeah. And, but, but tell me about, you know, applying those sort of slightly more abstract concepts to, you know, being in the studio and doing the stuff that you, you know, you did when you were, you know, in the kind of early full cycle days, you know, how, how does that, how does how does that, how those things, two things work together?
3: Uh, uh, lucky enough in full cycle we we had systems uh, uh, in the way that we worked we were very methodical in the way that we made basses the way we um, made drums the way that we arranged the songs and we had a very strong work ethic and that really helped me really understand that I think success was for us was driven by the work ethic and the, the the productivity and the output you know it was just a numbers game you know we we were four guys and we probably on any every week we probably make about 25 tunes between us so that's just on average five you know four to five tunes each so that was my work ethic and i and i knew that be, that we were at working a lot of people so we were just it was just a, it was just productivity so i understood that and so what i what, what But but to get there and to keep consistent, there were certain things that we noticed and certain patterns that we noticed. And so observing those were, were the key factors that I would explain to people. Because when people, like you say, you see people on the outside, they assume and they have these ideas what's going on, especially music colleges, they're teaching people, you know, what they think we were doing back then. But none of them actually came to actually sit into, in a studio or an environment and watch us work. So they've just... Right. Right. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? They just create these courses and say, oh, you'd come and do a music course, but you haven't actually, you know, um, based it on actually real world producers, right? People who are actually earning a living in the real world, you know, nowhere else can you do that, right? So... Coming from that, when I'm working with people, I'm first of all, it's about work ethics. You've got to have a, 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 a ridiculous work ethic to try and break through the, through, the, through, the, through that uh, monotony, uh, you know, barrier, sorry. But one of the things, the, the one thing that is the common denominator in everybody is mindset. And so if you are not, for instance, we were four guys challenging each other every day we created a system that we didn't know we even had, right? And so we knew the stat, we knew what how mixed down our track needs to sound so it could be played on the radio and in a club and, you know, and sound good in a car. You just intuitively know that, intuitively know that after you've done it for 10 years. You don't, you like know, you don't need, um, uh, spectrum analyzers, you just know what that's supposed to be like, and so yeah. we understood what that is. And so when I'm what, what I what I what I created was a was a, a a very systematic way of understanding how to think to get a specific result. And so f- first of all, the majority of people that are trying to get to this next level, they don't believe they can do it, or if they or, or I don't necessarily say they don't believe they can do it. They just don't know they can do it. And so they say they want to be a producer. They'll say they want to be a DJ. And I think that's the first mistake because none of us wanted to be a DJ or producer. We just wanted to make great music. And then we wanted to just perform it in front of people. So first of all, again, we're just trying to change people's language. We're trying to change people's expectations because whenever... What I've learned as well, whenever you want to do X... You want to not try and do X, you want to go beyond X, right? If you're trying to be the best in the world, try to be the best in the universe and then you'll probably end up being the best in the world. So you always have to overshoot, and that's just because our language is limited. It doesn't, un, it doesn't give us what we ask for. It gives us, you know, what we're expecting. And underneath all that bravado, of most people is a belief that they're not good enough, they're not going to be accepted. And then, they, and then, of course, if you if you're vibrating on that frequency, you're going to attract it. If you have too many knockbacks, because most creators are, are emotionally led. If you have too many knockbacks, that it impinges on your creativity because now you're trying to appease appease the, the the crowd, you're trying to make music that's going to be liked, you're trying to make music that's going to be popular, why do you need to do that? Because you want to get booked, you want to get gigs, and now you're on a downward spiral because you're, you're basing what your career and what you do every week on the lowest common denominator, which is going to go out of fashion really quickly. So. What, what I try to instill in people is the mindset and help them change their beliefs and help them change their attitudes. And then once we can, st- you know, we do that for like 90 days. I don't teach people how to make music. I've never done that. I always focus people on changing their mindsets and developing a long-term view. And when they do that, their confidence change, their ability their ability to deal with criticism, stand out and be unique changes. Because what's innovation, what's, what is creativity and what's going to get you to the next level in your career, it's not going to be what everyone else is doing. Because if it was, it would have worked by now. And so what people, what I help people in is like, what is unique about you that once we figure it out, we can use that uh, to get you to the next place. Because when you think about why was the, the the iPhone so successful? Why didn't Steve Jobs just make another phone like Nokia or or um, BlackBerry or um, the Motorola? Right? He could have easily done that. He had the technology. He had the technology. He had the means. He certainly had the, the capabilities. But he knew that there was no advantage for Apple to come out and do what everyone else is doing. He understood with that slogan, think differently, that for him to get market share in a, in a market that was already saturated with, with competitors who were years ahead of him, he had to completely out-innovate them. And when you completely out-innovate somebody, a few things happen. One, you stand so far out of the norm, it's uncomfortable. So that's one reason why most people don't innovate out-innovate the competition because we're social animals. And as social animals, the, f- the last thing you want to do is to be out of the social group. But to be on the next level of your career, you have to go outside of the social group. And so this is where the saying, get comfortable being uncomfortable comes from because that's how you break out of your comfort zone. But it's counterintuitive to human nature. That's why it's really hard to do it. That's why everybody follows the pack. That's why everybody... Um, um, follows conventional wisdom that's why everybody follows the status quo because it's easy to do it doesn't require any effort and that's why we, it's easy that's why they say just go with the flow man like <clears throat> if you go with the flow uh, you'll just be like a, the other dead fishes around you and that's where right and that's why the music industry has been going around in circles for 30 years right exactly and so that in it that is basically the, the sort of frameworks that I work on and You know you have to most people when they come to me they'll they'll, my music isn't working or um, I'm in a job that I don't like and I used to be making music but I didn't think I could make music in it so they have this desire that's unfulfilled they have this thing that they're trying to get back to Uh, they've been you know they were in a they were a music person or a DJ and then you know they got into a relationship, they had kids and because they couldn't pursue the career anymore, they had to go and quote, unquote, get a real job. And now, they've been doing that for 20 years. They, are they you know, they bought their house. They're quite, uh, they're quite secure. Now they want to go back to it. They want to finish off what they started. They want to get back to this, you know, fulfilling their dream and their desire. But they've been out of it for so long, you know, they don't know what to do. They didn't, and the game's changed. And so, you know, these are a few of these people that I work with. And then there's the other people that I work with who are established in in, in their chosen field. So now I'm working across the board with lots of creatives, not just music people, but designers, coders. The, the common denominator in all of that is self-belief. There's, there's a block that's stopping them getting to the next part, next place in their career. Building their business to the next level, or understanding who they are in amongst all of that, and getting a clear idea of how to leverage that to get to the next to the next um, part in their career. So, how I use that to create my the album, The Edge of Everything, was really I took I I took the I looked at The Edge of Everything like a, a bit like a startup. So again, if you follow my mindset and the way that I'm thinking, I always, when I'm creating a project, I never call the project what it is because I don't want to use the language to limit the capabilities of what the project is. So The Edge of Everything was a startup and it was a movie. So I always, talk, I always talked about it like a film and I, and I encouraged everybody when I was, you know, the management and the label, I always told them, don't ever call it an album, call it a film right and then the way that I approached it was like a startup so I had you know if you came to my studio at that time you would have saw mood boards I did the photo shoot two years before the album so I would live with the photos of what the album represented so I had that all on the wall
2: really really wow that's I've never heard anyone do that That's, that's yeah that's a really smart little trick yeah
3: so I planned the album for five years so I I sat down and I spent the first two years trying to understand what story I was going to tell. So that's like me trying to figure out what business I'm going to create. And then once I figured out what story I was going to tell, then I went to find the best tools to tell the job. So that's like me, again, figuring out where the best tools are to help me run this business. And so... And then once I found all the best tools, then I spent another year or two just making the sounds for the album. Like, what does this concept look like? I'd look on the mood board. I'd look at some of the names that I had written down, some of the ideas, some of the quotes, some of the films, some of the documentaries. And I would draw ideas from that. I'd be saying, okay, what is this? What is this? What is this? So one of the tracks was i had like... I had most of the names of the album. one thing that we, we used to do in four cycles we whatever project we were doing, we would write the names of the out the tracks down before we 'd made them, so I took that with me and I wrote down all the names of you know the um, tracks before i i 'd made them, and that again that comes from the research phase that comes from me digging in the crates that comes from meditating and visualizing and you know creating the story so the story of of what at the edge of everything, I was born before I started writing it. It was like I knew what the story was going to be about it was going to be about this story arc of a person who it was my story basically me going through what i 'd gone through and you know and, and coming to the coming to the edge of everything, and the edge of everything was describing this place where we are in the world right now where we are at the edge of everything because everything's crumbling but everything's becoming new everything is dying out but everything is there's a there's a, is an opportunity for something brand new to happen so I was reflecting that I was looking at society as a whole and myself and seeing how I fit in how the story fits in and I was you know telling that through the tracks and so you know um, you had negative returns so what does negative return sound like listening to some of the ideas and um, um, what I would do is that I sketched out like about a hundred ideas all 16 to 32 64 bar loops all on one page so on all on one page in pro tours I just had loops 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 going all the way up and down the page and then I would write I'd do one day I'd do ba- like one morning I'd just do basses I'd just go I would sit down I would just make loads and loads of basses and I would go through the, through all the loops and play basses until something happened and then when I found ones that worked i keep those i make those separate and then I'd do the same thing with strings I'd do the same thing with drums and then eventually I had like all the parts that you hear in the albums they were sections that just sat On there, and then what I would do, I'd let's do jigsaw puzzle. Does that work with that? Does that work with that? Does that work with that? And then, and then once I got you know maybe you know a minute, two minutes each of these these weird parts, I would start again putting them together, and you know like like a sort of jigsaw puzzle. I was completely sort of working in a non-linear way. I was just I was like I understood what I was doing, but I was working almost telling a story you know, like a Chris Nolan film, like Memento, just this bit could go with that bit. There was no linear thinking, this is the intro and that intro must do this. It was like I I was completely, you know, working intuitively let me put that with that. It doesn't quite work, but I'll live with it. Let me just, and then come back to that tomorrow. So then I would just put ideas together and then leave it, come back with it in about two months. And oh yeah, that sounds perfect. And then we can move on again. And then, you know, and then I just kept building and building and building. And then eventually the tunes would just start to, the shells of these tunes, like four or five minutes would start to build. And then I would go in and start filling them in with different canvases, different paints, different, different textures, different, you know drums different sounds whatever and then take them out and then start building them as pieces by themselves put them in their own arrangements and then start doing the more, the more sculpting you know getting more more um, more sounds on top of them more layers and then just start and then it just sort of built organically over a period of time until I had about at about 12 The tracks that you hear They were the best Of the best You know what I mean There's, There was other things That were close But they didn't quite Fit in story wise And tell the story The way I wanted them to So They just got put to the side But those were the best Of the best And those ones fitted the narrative of what a story I was trying to tell. And so, but that is well, that was very well thought through the way I would do a coaching session, the way I would teach someone, the way that I would set up a business. That is the way that I approached the the, the album. Mm.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, had you ever done anything in that kind of methodology before musically,
3: I mean? Yeah, so I did a, where I got that from was, um, I did a sample library for Buck's Music for one of their, um, one of their subsidiaries called Standard Music and they asked me to write um, some library music and I, and I was like well what, what's library music like and they gave me these CDs and he said right you can do a track for a minute you can do one for you know an hour it doesn't matter you just do so they gave me all these CDs and I went home and I listened to them and I was like Wow, people get paid for not finishing ideas. (laughs) And I said to myself, I'm right at home here. Do you know what I mean? Because at that time, I was like, I wasn't making, I was just in the studio. That's all I was doing. I was just making these loops. And so, and so I basically, what I did, I set the studio up, and all I did for about three months was just make loops. And it was the best time I'd had in years of making music. Because before then, I was trying to make, you know, I was trying to revisit the glory days, basically. I was trying to do what I knew I could do, but it wasn't working. I wasn't really enjoying it. But making this this, this library sampler, it was so freeing. And out of that came the George Kurtz project. And so, basically, what I would do, that, that same process I just explained, that's where I got it from. I just sat in the studio, and I just made loads and loads and loads of loops. Some of them were minute long, some of them were two, five, six, and just just a sound or two sounds. And it, it was so liberating. And I just had so much fun, so much freedom doing it that it was just it was just amazing. And so from that, because what I'd learned was that, and this is one of my things as well, when people struggle making tracks, and I certainly experienced it, it's because I tried to make a track. I tried to sit down with one idea from start to finish and make a track. That's where I was struggling. And so when I started to not make tracks anymore and just work on this basis of just doing loads and loads of loops, that's how I created Soul Emotion, right? When I created Soul Emotion and True Stories, I created loads and loads of loops. And, I, and by the time I finished making these loops, I had a, really had four minutes of Soul Emotion made. Unconsciously, I wasn't trying to make it, and that gave me this clue of an idea. And when I started to do this sample library thing, the exact same thing happened. So it was like it was like a sort of secret backdoor way of making tunes without actually making a tune. You were just experimenting, putting ideas together, but un- unconsciously the mind is is making connections between the loops that you're making. So unconsciously, on this grid that I had, I had like you know hundred tunes or hundred ideas, I knew where a bass was that would fit with the drum. Right? It was just like I could I heard it and I when I made a when I made a string, I was like, Oh, I know where a bass is that would fit with that. Let me just go and find it. And even even in the process of just through these ideas, another spark of an idea would happen. And so it just became this really creative, fertile experience that I never got bored of. And and the reason why I kept I kept it all on one grid is because what most what most producers do or creators do they they separate that the the what they're doing and they go from one they go from one arrangement to another the time it takes you for, to go from one arrangement to another you could have lost the idea and so what I recognized was if I just have everything all on one page. I'm just going to keep going between it, and I don't need to. I don't need to f- uh, come out of the arrangement. I just go bam, 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 bam. If I got a bass that works on two or three tunes, then I'll use it on two or three tunes. I'm not going to just, you know, whatever. And so I just went, I, and that's what I did. I just kind of, you know, just went through the arrangement, putting sounds here, putting strings there, putting drums there, and it just became re- It just became exciting. I was like, well, what can I do next? And it, and, I, and I, all of a sudden, I found myself. Being in the studio up till four or five on the again in the morning, and I hadn't done that for years, and so I was like, you're right, and I was excited, and I was, I was genuinely excited again about doing music, and that was exciting for me, and I was doing something completely new. It wasn't jungle, it was, it was um, uh, library music, and I, and I didn't realize I could, I could you know had that much fun with it and that changed the game for me so when I did that out of that came the George Kurtz project so I released a couple of tracks on my own label at the time I think Rebel Instinct yeah under George Kurtz um and then, and then and then I used the George Kurtz model mindset to make music in the same way I was making Jungle from the hip-hop point of view. I started making Jungle again, but from the George Kurtz point of view. And that was long, almost like me being gang-related, you know, just having fun again, not playing by the rules. And that's kind of how I approached the edge of everything. It was from the George Kurtz mentality of, of not being, you know, not playing the game the way that... It's supposed to be done, like complete abandonment of the rules. Mm.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Well, um, listen, man, this has been great. I've got one more question, but I think, I think you just answered it. But I'm going to ask it anyway, and, and uh, we'll, we'll discover. So there's, there's a quote I pulled out from, uh, I think it was, actually, I forget, there's a, there's a million interviews I read, but there's a, a, a quote that you pulled out where you're talking about your studio method. You're, talk, you're talking about this stuff, basically. And, and you say, there could be a two-year project before I even start making music, and most of that is unconscious. So what did you mean by most of that being unconscious?
3: Being unconscious. <clears throat> I'm setting the, the ball in motion so I'll say right I'm going to do I'm doing it as as we speak as well I'm I'm working on the next two albums but they're all it's just a mind thing at the moment I'm just thinking about it I'm thinking about what's the album about you know who am I going to work with you know I've already reached out to a couple of people singer drummer keyboard player you know and I've kind of told them you know are you are you free? Are you, are you free for the next two years? <laughs> but um, I'm like, you know, I'm just preparing the ground. I'm preparing the soil. I'm preparing myself to go and do this thing because for me it's all encompassing. You know, to the 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 edge of everything was three years of you know I built a new studio for that project. I went. I found a I found a a unit and I you know I I, I it was a shell. Um, you know uh, i've got a guy to come in and build the room for me you know put the floor down and that was specifically to to do this album and so you know i'm in the same position now i'm thinking about you know what is this album going to be what story am i going to tell i kind of know i kind of know that now but again it's like what equipment do i need for it you know uh, and 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 now is a different conversation so if we cycle back you know am i going to use ai right am I going to use you know is it going to be a web free thing is it going to be on the blockchain is it going to be crypto is it going to be patreon all these different questions I'm asking myself so I'm trying to figure out what the st- what the delivery is what the marketing is and so you know I don't do I don't leave all those things to the end I, I you know bake all that stuff into the process as I'm doing it so that it feels more organic because by the time we finish you know the whole thing's finished I'm not just finishing that and then starting the marketing I'm doing it as I'm going along like now I'm telling you about a project that hasn't been finished and hopefully your readers will be questioning oh when's this project coming and so that's the whole thing it's getting people excited it's getting excuse me, it's getting me excited, you know, and I get the feedback from the audience as well. So when last time when I did this, I kept hearing from the audience, like, you know, is it going to be like soul emotion? Is it going to be like a warhead up? And so this is what people are expecting from me. So I'm like, okay, when they say that, are they really saying they want something experimental uh, when they say that are they really saying they want something exciting and, and powerful so i'm trying to interpret to interpret what the audience is expecting what i'm going to give them you know what and what the culture is doing you know and where i fit in in, this, in the bigger picture sound wise, movie wise, film-wise, culture-wise, game-wise, crypto-wise, whatever it is. Like how does how do I evolve my sound so I can still be a part of the culture, a part of the conversation. And for me, that's what I'm excited about. I mean, I love doing projects. I love doing concepts. And, you know, that's why Wonder Palace is my new is my new sort of design company and, and again i 'm playing with the whole idea again it 's a, it's a, it's a media company but i 'm calling it a design company because i 'm designing experiences, so a, 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 a irrational numbers is the first project to come out underneath that and then we 've got a uh, cloud Lord coming out which is, which is me and um, need for mirrors uh, and then we 've got another uh, project we 've got about five projects sort of lined up all different projects so some music. Some other stuff and some other stuff I'll keep that as a surprise for the audience but we're I'm just creating experiences and I'm building teams of people filmmakers producers writers uh you know uh, coders and we're gonna create some some different exciting exciting projects that you know um are are exciting to be a, to 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 be a part of yeah man absolutely well yeah Thanks
2: so much for your time, man. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. Cool. I've enjoyed it as well, man. Yeah, that was crust. As I mentioned at the top, when I started doing research for this episode, I was not expecting to have such a wide-ranging conversation. I was expecting to be much more focused on drum and bass and jungle. And obviously, we got into some of that stuff and very interesting and fun it was to talk about. But, you know, talking about these wider issues and wider kind of themes of creativity and you know music and the music industry and you know how best to navigate your way through it. That's a super interesting thing to do with someone like him. He's obviously a really deep thinker and someone who yeah just I guess puts his money where his mouth is when it comes to all that kind of stuff. So yeah, what a great and slightly unexpected conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. Really great episode actually this week. One of my favourites, I think, that we've ever had on the show. So, yes, really good one. Right, I think I'm going to duck out. Just a reminder that Hardcore Heaven 2 is up for pre-order on Bandcamp right now. The vinyl is up for pre-order. Limited press, 500 units only for the world. Head over to hotflush.bandcamp.com to get a copy of that. And then I have a long player, kind of a long player, mixtape coming out in November called Digital Undergrounds, which is that sort of hardcore stuff too. I'll say a bit more about that next week. But before we go, quick reminder about Patreon. If you are enjoying the show, then it would be nice if you could support us over there. Patreon.com slash official. $4 a month and $10 US a month. Extremely cheap. The higher tier, you get all the music that we release on Hot Flush and affiliated labels in high quality digital formats. So that's pretty reasonable, really. If you don't want to, if you can't do that, that's fine. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. Hit the five-star button. That would be nice of you. Join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. And follow the Spotify playlist. Loads and loads of classic drum and bass in that playlist this week. Link in the show notes. Okay, I'm done. I'll see you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you.
1: Let's go cool, wow.